Well, good morning. How are we? All right. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, used to say if a church was on fire for God, people would come from miles around to watch it burn. And to paraphrase Booth, if believers were to experience the fire of God's worship, then lost people would be drawn to God like a moth to a flame. That more people meet Jesus because of passionate worship of his children and followers than anything else. In the collection of Psalms, there are nine, this is interesting to me, there are nine alphabetical acrostic Psalms. In other words, each verse in certain Psalms begin with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We're going to be in Psalm 34 today, but I encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Psalm 34 is one of these Psalms written so that each line begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This tells us a couple of things about these Psalms. Number one, that a Psalm written in this way, alphabetically and acrostically, it was written in this way as a memorization tool. These Psalms were written for Hebrew children specifically to memorize. And so they were written to be uh, memorized, but also to be instructional. Uh, uh, These successive verses um, and the memorizational tool that the psalmist employed were written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, to instruct and shape the life of the reader and the learner. There's something very formative here that we're going to see in Psalm 34 for the follower and worshiper of God. So we're in the middle of a series called Training Ground. And if you've been around for a couple of weeks, you know that. And we've stated that 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8 are our, our theme and challenge each week. And here's, here's what, we're, what we read there. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. One of the ways that we train ourselves for godliness is to train ourselves as true worshipers. And so this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 34 as a model for how we engage in worship with our Heavenly Father. It's a model for worshipers. One of my favorites, by the way, this psalm, like many psalms, was written by King David. And, and the story behind it is, is fascinating. So if you, if you have your copy of God's Word open, I want you to look directly above Psalm 34. And in most of your copies of God's Word, there will be an introductory heading. Just nod with me if you see that there. If there's a descriptor of when and why uh, this was written. So in, in, in my copy of God's Word, it says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, that little introduction points us back, and if you're taking notes, to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, you're probably familiar with the story, uh, but before we read our text, we're just going to review a little bit. 
When David wrote Psalm 34, you'll remember that King David, he had already been anointed as the successor to to who? Who was the first king of Israel? A man named Saul. All right, at this point, when David wrote Psalm 34, he had already killed the champion of the Philistine army whose name was... Good, good, you're tracking with me, okay? Goliath was a giant. He was the champion of the entire Philistine army. Um, David was the one of whom, after he killed Goliath, you remember this, Israel was singing, the women of Israel were singing these songs that Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Good, okay, so you know the story. And so Saul, at this point, you remember, was worried uh, um, and envious because if you're the king of a nation and people are singing, which is really a pretty great song about you as a warrior, you've killed thousands of our enemies. Wow. Like, you're a big deal, Saul. But then verse 2 of the song rolls around, and it's, but David has killed tens of thousands. And I'm sure Saul was like, well, it was really just one guy he's killed. But, you know, and so Saul became worried and envious because whenever that kind of song begins to be sung, your right to the throne at least feels like it's in jeopardy. And so Saul became insecure and he became angry and, uh, and that led to a very faithful decision by Saul that Saul was going to eliminate his perceived competition for the throne of Israel. He's going to kill David, this young man who had only been obedient to the Lord at this point. So he goes on the hunt to find and kill David, thus securing his own throne and succession. But David recognizes that Saul is after him, and he comes up with what can only be described as a brilliant plan. Have you ever been in a situation where you have made this statement afterwards? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Anybody ever said that? It seemed like a good idea at the time. And that's sort of where David finds himself. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and I'm not really sure why he did this, uh, but David, when Saul, the king of Israel, is after him, scratches his head, and he says, where can I go to escape from the king who's determined to kill me? And David's brilliant plan was that he would run to a Philistine city called Gath. Now, this is why I look at it and say, I have no idea why he did this. Because what you know and what I know, or what some of us know at least, is Gath was the hometown of who? Goliath. David had just killed who? I'll just be honest with you, this seems like a really dumb idea to me. That I'm going to go hide in the hometown of the man I just killed on the battlefield. Who, by the way, this is our enemy. So David runs to a Philistine city called Gath. He's just killed Goliath, and he and the armies of Israel, the Bible tells us, (coughs) pursued the Philistine army, and they pursued them all the way, the Bible tells us, up to a certain city called Gath, which coincidentally is the hometown of Goliath. So David goes and seeks refuge in the hometown of the enemy he has killed. Now listen, you know this as well as I do. If there was one person who did not blend in in the city of Gath, it would be who? The giant, 
Everybody knows Goliath. He is the champion. When David runs to hide in Gath, guess who's probably still there? His cousins, his brothers, his wife, the mayor. Goliath has the key to the city. And David decides, it's a better idea for me to go and hide in the hometown of Gath than it is for me to face the man who is pursuing me. That's a kind of fear many of us have never experienced. That's a kind of fear some of us can say, but I don't know why he did what he did, but I too have been in many situations where I've said on the other side, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So David seeks refuge here, and there's a pretty good chance he probably is thinking himself that nobody here will actually know what I look like so I can flee here. This is the one place of all of the places in the surrounding area where Saul is certainly not going to come looking for me. So maybe that's what he's thinking. Like Saul's not, certainly not going to come here. Nobody would be dumb enough to go and go to Gath. So I'll go to Gath. So David gets in, and while he's in the city of Gath, some of the advisors to King Achish, the king of Gath, say to him, Hey, hey, the new guy in town. Isn't that actually the guy who killed our champion Gath? You know, your, your neighbor, the guy who had the key to the city? Isn't the new guy in town, you know, the young guy, isn't he the guy that killed Goliath? And the king says to them, You have lost your mind. He'd never come here. Why would the man who killed Goliath come to our town? But go ahead and bring him in anyways. And so they seize David. They bring him into the king's presence. And what does David realize at this point? Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. It seemed like a good idea at the time. So they bring him in before the king. He realizes that he's in a very sticky situation. And so he thinks quickly and he comes up with the second part of his plan. You remember the second part of his plan? The second part of his plan is drooling. David decides that he will spit a little on himself. I know that's gross. And he allows himself to drool down his beard. He starts making scratching noises and marks on the walls, and he acts like a madman. And in the ancient Near East, um, it was bad luck to mess with a crazy person. I'm not sure that's any different today. It was bad luck to mess with a crazy person. You leave them alone. And the king responds to his advisors. He says, hey, I've got enough crazy people to deal with here in Gath, and you bring me another one? Get this person out of here. No way that this is Israel's champion who killed my giant. No way this is the man who killed the man who has the key to the city. And David flees from Gath into the wilderness. And after that experience, David sits down somewhere in the wilderness, somewhere probably between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea, while he's probably still in Philistine territory, and he pins the words that have become known to us as Psalm 34. And here's the realization that David came to before he penned these words, and maybe as he's penning these words, that it was the Lord and not his own clever schemes that delivered him from this trouble. And this Psalm 34 became a model for worship for all these Hebrew students who would learn it 
and memorize it. And what we gain as we look at Psalm 34, and we'll take a little different approach this morning. We'll read a verse or two, and then we're going to draw something out of it, or 11 descriptors of a life of worship. And we're talking about training ground for us. We're talking about spiritual disciplines. And really, all spiritual disciplines rest on this one. If you and I can't live lives of worship directed to our Heavenly Father, then the rest of it is a house of cards and it crumbles. So 11 descriptors, these are descriptive of what a life of worship looks like. So let's read together. Psalm chapter 34, verse 1 David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. A life of worship is continual. It's continual. It's consistent. David says at all times, even in the king's clutches, the right response, David says, is to bless the Lord or acknowledge the glory which makes him who he is, to praise him to boast about him, to to, to engage in praise of our God. This is the message, David says, for those who are afflicted, those who are sort of at the bottom of life's heap, those who are in a deep pit of despair. When things are going great, David would say to you and I, praise the Lord. When things are not going great, David would say to us, praise the Lord. When things are going bad, praise the Lord. The reality is this morning that every single person in this room has had some really, really good days. Have you had some good days? Everybody had some good days? Have you had some bad days? Have you had some really bad days? Any of us in the room had a day so bad we never expected we would have a day that bad? Any of us ever lived through a season of life that caught us by surprise and we never thought it would get that hard or that difficult or challenging or heartbreaking? We have some good days. We have some bad days. And here's the question that you and I have to wrestle to the ground and deal with for ourselves as individuals. Is God worth more on your good days than he is on your bad? Is God more worthy when things are going well in your life than he is when things are not going well in your life? Is God more worthy in the easy seasons than he is in the difficult seasons? A sign of maturity in a follower of Jesus is this first point. It's continual worship through the changing seasons and circumstances of your life. But listen to me. Worship will look different in the hard times than it will in the good times. And that's okay. As long as we remember to learn this lesson that David is teaching us through a challenging season in his life. That worship is a life of worship. It's continual. Verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. A life of worship is humble, he tells us in verse 2. David, by all appearances, has delivered himself from his circumstances and his enemy. And yet, what do we find him doing? 
He is ascribing glory to his true deliverer. A life of worship is humble. It doesn't look at itself and say, look what I have done. Look how great I am. Look how I have provided for my family. Look how I have gotten this promotion. Look how I have brought us through. Look how strong I am to make it through that tough season of life. A life of worship is humble. In other words, could I encourage you to ask this one simple question daily, every single day? When you open up God's word, when you have your devotional time with the Lord, which should be every single day, here is a very important question. God, what can I praise you for on this day? What can I thank you for on this day? Many believers do not, outside of Sunday, participate in worship or outside of corporate worship on Sunday. And the reason is so very simple but embarrassing. Do you want to know what it is? We forget to. How tragic is that? That we can go Monday to Saturday and forget to ascribe worth to the Lord. We forget because we're not in the habit of searching for reasons to boast in the Lord. What can I praise you for on this day? God, I want to properly see myself. I want to properly see you. And that happens as I elevate you in my mind and in my heart. And I'm searching for reasons daily to praise you. A life of worship is humble before the Lord. Verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. A life of worship is contagious. When your heart has been changed and you are living a life of worship on mission for King Jesus, your life will be contagious, motivated by this desire to see others come and know the Lord. Why? Because we love him. Not because of religious duty. Religious duty is not contagious, but love always is. Because of love for the Lord. We're continually looking for reasons to praise Him. We know that He is astounding. And the greatest desire of my life is to worship Him and to see others come to know Him and worship Him because I see Him for who He is as worth every ounce of praise and worship that my life can ascribe to Him. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. A life of worship is confident. Here's David somewhere on the run from King Saul. So afraid of Saul that he turns to his absolute enemy. Saul was a perceived enemy. The Philistines were an absolute enemy. How afraid do you have to be to seek refuge in the hometown of the man you killed? And yet here is David proclaiming. That the God of Israel has delivered him not only from Achish or Abimelech, depending on which part of the Bible you're looking in, but from all of his fears. Not just the situation he's in, but David says, you have delivered me from how many of my fears? All of my fears. That's confidence. That is supreme confidence in the Lord. Not that God would deliver him from all of his circumstances. This is so important but that God would deliver him through his circumstances and from his fears. And there is a humongous difference between the Lord delivering us from our circumstances and God delivering us through our circumstances 
but from our fears. That's confidence in the character and the reputation of the Lord to say, even if my circumstance does not change, you have delivered me from those circumstances holding me captive. You've delivered me from fear in spite of my circumstances. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. David continues and says, this poor man cried, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. A life of worship is measured. Let me explain what we mean by that. Those who look to Jesus, David says, they never reap shame. In other words, if you look to Jesus, you will never be disappointed as a result of looking to Jesus. You will still have disappointments. And and every one of us are like, we know that. Some of you have been followers of Jesus for longer than I've been drawing breath. You could write a book about disappointments. You've experienced them. This is not to say we will not have disappointments. This is to say we will never be disappointed in looking to Jesus. You will never be disappointed by looking to Jesus. No one will ever be disappointed by trusting in Jesus and in his character. This is not about David, complete mess of a man. I mean, one of the heroes of Israel, one of the heroes of the Old Testament. But if we're gut-level honest, David was a mess of a man. Promised the kingdom, and he finds himself on the run. Given the kingdom, and he wants so much more. It's not just David. No, this is for all of those who are humble enough to recognize that they are wretched and poor, bringing nothing to the table. The confidence we have in the Lord is measured, is measured by the beautiful simplicity of the fact that when we pray, David says to us here in Psalm 34, we are heard. When I call upon the Lord, David says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Dear ones, when we pray, do we believe that he's really listening? Because far too often, when we pray, We pray because it's what we're supposed to do, and it is what we're supposed to do. But we're supposed to do it because he listens, and he delights in the prayers of his children. So pray believing that your Father in heaven actually cares about what you're praying about. Because David reminds us, the Lord heard me, and he saved me. But the blessing is not just that he saved me. The blessing is that when we pray, he hears us. A worshiping life's confidence is measured by the radiant reflection of a God who sees and smiles upon those who seek him. Jesus says the same thing. Ask, seek, knock. He hears, he listens, he's waiting. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears him and delivers them. A life of worship is centered. I love this picture. The Lord encamps around those who fear him. 
The presence of the Lord surrounds those, hymns in those who fear him. Dear ones, a life of worship is centered on the fear of the Lord. What is that? I read this week. I love this. Uh, Another pastor said, when our children were little, we talked about the fear of the Lord very simply. We said the fear of the Lord is to take him seriously, more seriously than you take anything or anyone else. And he said we use two three-letter words. He said we use the word woe and the word wow. I love this. This is beautiful. The word woe, W-O-E, and the word wow. And the tension between those two words defines what the fear of the Lord really is. Woe is me that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 6 when he realizes, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. I make my living with my lips. I'm a preacher. I'm a prophet, Isaiah would say. And yet I'm undone. Even my lips, the best I have to offer as a prophet of God, are unclean. Woe, the fear of the Lord. But wow, you would actually use me. You would actually condescend to use me. Here I am. Will I do? Can you use me? Would you send me? That's the tension between woe is me and wow, he loves me. He's really forgiven me. He is willing to use me to accomplish his purposes in this world. That gets to the heart of what it is to fear the Lord, to live in that tension of saying, above and beyond everything else, above and beyond my fear of King Saul or, or Achish or the people of Gath or Goliath, above all of that is a fear of the Lord, this holy reverence. I take him seriously, but I long to delight in you. I want to take your word seriously and root my life in it and upon it. And he continues, and this is, oh, this is the best part. Verse 8. I, I, I can hardly read it without singing it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. A life of worship is satisfied. Taste and see is not a general invitation for the church community. This is personal. We can never be satisfied in Jesus when we only hang out with Jesus on the weekends. This is an invitation into a personal experience. Not a glimpse from far off, but an invitation to come close. To know God deeply is to be satisfied in God completely. To know Him deeply always results in complete satisfaction in Him. Is this not what Jesus has done for us? He came to be with us that we might know Him. If you're not completely satisfied in Jesus... The answer is not to go and look elsewhere for satisfaction. The answer is to go deeper in Jesus. David would write again in Psalm 65, listen to these words. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near, and bring near to dwell in your courts. And then he continues, listen to this, I love this. I just stumbled across this psalm just a few weeks ago. I can't shake it. It says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. And then he continues and says, we shall be satisfied with your goodness. 
We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Guess who that is? That's you, beloved. That's you, Christian. Blessed is the one that God chooses and brings near. You have been chosen and brought near, near to the Father, and the deepest longing of your soul will be satisfied as you taste and see that he alone is good. A life of worship is satisfied because a life of worship is continually in the presence of the Lord. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. A life of worship is directed. Do you see it? Who or what you depend on in times of trial and distress is the object of your worship. Because that is who you trust and revere the most when things are hard. Where we turn is what we worship. I I turn to the one I believe who can deliver me or assist me in times of pain and fear. David turns to the Lord. Some turn to alcohol. Some turn to TV. Some turn to hobbies. Some turn to other people. David did turn to other things for deliverance until he didn't. But then what happens is David turns around after the Lord has delivered him, and he says, Oh, come, O oh children, listen to me. A life of worship is directed. And here's what David says to those he teaches. If you want to enjoy life to the fullest, live it according to the one who designed it. Worship of God necessarily means honoring his desires, his ways. A life of worship cares deeply for the desires of the Father. We find those rooted in his word. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed. The spirit of life of worship is dependent. It's dependent. True worshipers recognize that they are fully dependent on someone else. That's why we worship. That's why we cry for help. Because we can't do for ourselves. We depend on the Lord. We're not afraid of asking for too much, for praying too much, depending too much. Some of the most beautiful words I believe ever been written. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you depend on the Savior in times of distress? This is the lesson that David was learning. All of his schemes and intuition All his manipulating came up empty. He had to learn dependence on the Father and a life of worship, a worshiping life, recognizes 
I am completely and totally dependent on him and his grace. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. A life of worship is resilient. Life is hard. We've already all agreed on that. We've been through hard things, hard times, hard seasons, disappointments, heartache, and heartbreak. Life is hard for everyone. Every single person experiences pain, trial, and affliction. Affliction, And David would say affliction would come to all people. Only God's people can withstand them. Why is that? Because the believer says, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why? Because we look to things that are not seen, but unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The worshiper's conviction is that the here and now is not all that there is. And listen, beloved, worship, and can I just, I, the Lord just sort of impressed this on my heart this week. Worship in today's circumstances, not, I'm not talking generally speaking of today. I'm talking about this day. What is the date today? 27th? 22nd. I don't look at a calendar enough. Worship on, in the circumstances in your life on January 22nd, 2023 is a gift that you will never be able to give to your heavenly father again. You will never be able to worship him in these circumstances again. You will never be able to give the gift of today to him again. Is today a bad day? Is today a hard day? Is today a sad day? You will never be able to give him this day with tears in your eyes, heartache in your voice, but a confidence in the supreme goodness of the Lord again. Worship is our gift to him. It's resilient. We choose to worship in spite of our circumstances sometimes. You can give him your tomorrow and you can give him the next day. But today is a gift that we can give him believing that no matter how bad things might be or no matter how wonderful things might be, as C.S. Lewis once said, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. A life of worship, we'll end with this, is freedom. A life of worship is freedom. For each of us, the invitation is right here. The question that we must answer is right here. What will you be tasting and seeing to find the good that you are ultimately after? Will you come and taste and drink deeply? And find that the Lord is really very good. Well, this psalm actually answers that question. Verse 2 says, let the humble hear and be glad. 
Verse 11 says, come, O children, and listen to me. You see, it's only those who come in humility and who come as children that can really taste and see that he is good. It's only those who come, who become what Jesus alone can make us. Verse 9, of those who are the saints, fear the Lord, you as saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Again, verse 15, verse 17 speaks of the righteous. It's only those who are made saints and righteous by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ becoming their own. Who will come? Those declared righteous by faith in Christ who humble themselves, come as children, who hear the Lord Jesus saying, John 10, I have come that you might have life, that you might have it to the full, that you might enjoy it, that you might have abundance in life, who will taste and see that the Lord is good. My cup overflows with the goodness of the Lord. Those who hear Jesus in Matthew 11, come to me, all you are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation is here. It's come. All who hunger, come. All who thirst, come. Just come to Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's the only place any of us will be filled and satisfied. And our worship then becomes an overflow of the deep, deep well that we drink from. Of the bountiful table that we dine at where we have tasted and seen and experienced the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And our heart is to give you what we can on this day. And God, no matter the circumstances of this day, easy circumstances, hard circumstances, happy circumstances, painful circumstances, that we choose to bring a sacrifice of praise and that our gift to you on this day is the worship that we can give you on this day. And Lord, I do pray that tomorrow we will collectively wake up and say, this day, Lord, I want to bring to you a sacrifice of praise and I want to give to you a gift of worship. And I pray again on Tuesday that we will wake up and say, on this day, Lord, I want to bring a sacrifice of praise before you. I want to gift you my worship on this day. And so, Heavenly Father, I just pray for each and every man and woman in the room that you would remind us of your goodness. You would remind us to come and taste and to see day by day. Their heads bowed and their eyes closed. I, I, I don't want to assume that everybody in this room has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if you're in the room this morning or if you're online this morning and you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you find yourself more like David trying to scheme your way through life and handle issues on your own, can I just beg of you this morning? Give up. Come to the table. Taste and see and find the deepest longing of your soul answered and satisfied in Him. 
that happens when we reach out in faith and we declare in faith, believing that he is who he says he is. That he is a God who became a man to live and to die that you might become changed and have life forever. Will you believe it this morning? Will you dare to taste and see that he is good? Boy, for all of us, I do believe we're being called in to deeper worship this morning. To give more of ourselves to him. And so whatever sacrifice of praise, whatever commitments of worship we need to make to him this morning, then I just pray in this invitation time, each of us will respond to the Holy Spirit's call in our life in a way that is appropriate and honoring. If you need to join this body, if you need to be obedient in baptism or answer a call of God on your life to serve in some way, if you need to come and for the first time taste and see, I just pray when we stand and sing in a moment that you'd come, grab myself, Brother Charles, and just tell us what's going on. Let's pray with you so that you can experience all that God has for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We magnify your name for you are good. We bless you. We trust you. In the good and the beautiful name of King Jesus, we pray. And God's people said together, amen. You stand as we sing and continue in worship.